Welcome to the Cove's Audio Articles, where you can listen to some of the Cove's best articles rather than reading them. This article is entitled Tactical Spurs Part 2, Finding the Reward in Risk by Serving Australian Army Officer Tom McDermott, and is Part 2 of his article published on the Cove in 2020, Tactical Spurs Part 1, Making Plans to Fight Battles. Introduction Risk is part of war, and this never changes. Soldiers often say that war never changes. We shrug our shoulders, talking of Murphy's Law, hurry up and wait, on the bus, off the bus, and days of boredom followed by moments of intense excitement. All of these phrases suggest that deep down, there are a number of things that are enduring in war, things that will endure for as long as humans decide that they have to go and do violence against other humans on behalf of their state. The fact that war is risky is one of these things. Indeed, risk is probably one of the most defining factors in the nature of war. From daily work in an armoured vehicle park, through to conducting a contested amphibious beach landing, everything we do is inherently risky. Arguably, it's one of the reasons we exist to take risks on behalf of the Australian people to protect them from harm. Risk is our constant companion, a brother or sister in arms who always sits on our shoulder or trails behind us, sometimes helping us, but at other times just waiting for the moment to dismember an arm or a leg. Everywhere we turn, there is risk. For military commanders at all levels, this is a critical fact. Our role, most of the time, is to think about problems and make decisions. Considerations of risk, how much to take, when to take it, and who to put at risk, become absolutely central to these decisions. In many ways, each choice is a trade with the devil on our shoulder, with risk as the currency. What makes it tricky is that often we're trading blind, pitching into an uncertain future against a cunning enemy. This means that the way we think and talk about risk is at the heart of our success or failure. Let's talk about our current way of thinking about risk. There's a fallacy that the army doesn't think about risk in a sophisticated manner. Actually, this couldn't be further from the truth. The Australian Army's model for military risk management, or MRM, is both simple and sophisticated, and gives us all the tools we need to make solid risk-based decisions. It starts with a definition. Army defines risk as the effect of uncertainty on achieving objectives or the end state, which sounds complex, but really isn't. In war, we're almost always trying to achieve objectives based on an uncertain and chaotic situation that we can't predict. Risk is the potential impact of that uncertainty and chaos on our plans if things don't go our way. If uncertainty and chaos bite against us, then bad things happen and limbs tend to get ripped off. Not good. The next part of the Army's model seeks to work out how much uncertainty there is and how bad the bad things might be. This is done by looking at the likelihood and consequence of a given risk. The first one seeks to tell us how likely it is that bad things will happen, ranging on a scale from rare to almost certain. The second defines how bad things can get starting at minor and going all the way up to catastrophic. Add them together and you have a scale of badness at defined risk. An almost certain catastrophic risk is one we're always going to want to avoid. 
but we might happily accept a low, minor risk. The tricky ground is when we're playing in low likelihood, but high consequence and vice versa. This is where decision makers earn their money. Once we understand a risk, the final and exceptionally important part is to answer the question, who owns it and what can they do with it? Again, Army helps us here. Military risk management is very specific about who can own what risk and who can't, outlining this in a clear-cut table that we can keep in a notebook. Refer to the print version of this article to view the table, titled Figure 1, Delegated Risk Management Authorities, or refer to the Army Standing Instructions, Military Risk Management. As a CO and battle group commander, the author can accept a medium level of risk, defined as a moderate potential for serious degradation of an Australian Defence Force capability, serious injury, major asset damage or loss, mission failure of operational significant or short-term impact to reputation or morale. This is exceptionally clear to him. If a risk is inside this level, then he can own it fully, completely and without reference to anyone else. However, if a risk exceeds this ownership threshold or the author's comfort levels, then he needs to do something about it. This is where he's a little old-fashioned. The author continues to rely on what's called the four T's, treat, terminate, tolerate, and transfer. He can treat risk, reducing its severity through applying more resources or changing courses of action. He can terminate it, most likely by not doing the thing we're planning. He can tolerate it, although he obviously can't do this for the risk above his threshold. Or most importantly, the author can transfer it to a higher risk authority. When briefing a higher commander on risk, this is the bit he or she needs to hear about, the risk being transferred up. Simple but sophisticated, with everything one would need to understand and take risks. So despite this solid methodology, why does there continue to be a deeply ingrained perception that the army is risk-averse or bad at risk? For the author, this is because of two problems with our approach. So let's look at the two problems in our approach to risk. The first problem is that we're not very good at teaching or using our methodology. Risk theory is often seen as a tedious crutch rather than a critical tool in unlocking mission command and tactical tempo. Importantly, a lack of constant reinforcement and practice leads to an uncertain lexicon within the army. Each person thinks about risk differently and more importantly, defines it differently. We throw the phrase risky around a lot without a common conception of how much risk there is and who owns it. We also critically underanalyze and underuse the risk ownership we're all allocated by army. This is our permitted maneuver space, a place we can operate without reference to other risk holders. The over-bureaucratization of risk is a key output of this lack of practice. Traditionally, the first experience a young officer or non-commissioned officer has with risk is a highly complex RAS plus Excel spreadsheet attached to an activity. With limited formal instruction in risk theory and with the empty spreadsheets screaming at them to be filled out, our junior leaders understandably default to a box-ticking approach. This sets a box-ticking culture from the outset. Spreadsheets and forms also hate gaps, which drives our leaders to hunt and add risks that are already covered in standing policy, that are low enough to be within approved tolerances, or that simply don't really exist. 
This approach, which thankfully is changing, overcomplicates risk management. The second problem is that we take a predominantly defensive approach to risk, principally shaped by our in-barracks and training environments. It's absolutely right that Army applies a workplace health and safety mindset when working in barracks and when training. We operate highly dangerous workspaces and conduct dangerous exercises. Our responsibility to protect and safeguard our highly trained workforce is paramount. To do any less than this would breach our contracts with our soldiers and with Australia. However, there are second and third order cultural outcomes that come with this. The foundational principle of workplace health and safety is that risk is bad, and therefore we should constantly seek to reduce it. All good in barracks and when designing training. But in combat, this doesn't work. There are times we have to choose to take the most exceptional risks if it gives us the right tactical benefit. Often, given the chaotic nature of war, this is an exceptionally uncertain decision to make. But make it we must. As manoeuvrists, we tend to admire boldness as a character trait in our commanders. Often, this has to be synonymous with taking risk, even actively pursuing it. In war, risk is sometimes a good thing, even the best thing as long as we can leverage it against our adversaries and we aren't accepting it unconsciously or as blind or reckless choice. An inherently defensive culture towards risk in such situations can be fatal. At a minimum, it can stifle mission command and creativity, two key facets in unlocking tactical success. So what do we do about it? We need to change our relationship with risk if we're to be adaptive and truly unlock the benefits of mission command. This process has already started for Army, in terms of policy and procedure at least. As of late 2020, for example, the RAS Plus is no more. Standing risks in training that are already recorded in doctrine or standard operating procedures, SOPs, no longer need to be specifically recorded as long as you're operating within them and adhering to them. The phrase, as low as reasonably practicable, has been replaced with so far as reasonably practicable, reinforcing that lowness may not be the ideal aiming point for risk. Both good moves, with the latter perhaps too subtle to make a broad difference. For the author, however, the real solution is more cultural than bureaucratic. We need to grab the risk devil on our shoulder and make friends with him. This starts with getting to know him better. Risk must become one of the defining topics in all tactical discussions from the outset to the conclusion. Setting the tone of this is the commander's responsibility, framed through our risk theory. During scoping and framing of any problem, the commander should make articulating his or her risk appetite a central activity. This should be explicit, expressed in terms of I seek to take the medium risk of exposing reconnaissance forces early to confirm crossing sites, or I'm not willing to accept a high-risk course of action that splits the battle group on three axes. Risk then becomes the key currency of planning and execution, with commanders at all levels discussing and trading risk to help maximise tempo and mission command. The second solution is that commanders have to embrace their delegated risk level and then use this freedom to maximise mission command. If a commander assesses a decision is within their own risk level, they can and should execute it without further debate or recourse to a higher commander. When embraced across an organisation, 
This simple action has the capacity to significantly enhance decentralized execution. This freedom, however, is built on three things, a common understanding of risk, trust throughout the chain, and self-confidence in command. In terms of commonality, we all need to agree on what a medium risk, for example, looks like if we're to work within this space. This takes an investment of time and discussion across the command chain. On trust, everyone in the chain needs to know that they're trusted to act within their delegated risk and will be backed up if things go wrong. And finally, commanders must have the self-confidence to work at the edges of their delegated risk, clear in their heads that they have the authority and freedom to do so. The last solution here is a simple one, but one that is at the heart of success. We must break out of a barracks training bias when considering tactical risk in combat. Central is the recognition of the third aspect of risk beyond likelihood and consequence, that of opportunity. Tactical success in battle requires us at times to accept, embrace even, the most extreme of risks if we're to gain an edge over a cunning, thinking adversary. The lightning advances of the unarmoured 1st Reconnaissance Battalion during the 2003 invasion of Iraq, as depicted in the series Generation Kill, for example, were exceptionally high risk, but tactically decisive, pulling the remainder of the 1st Marine Division towards Baghdad. At times, we have to actively hunt out and pursue such risks if we are to be bold as manoeuvrists, seizing the key terrain, exploiting the uncertain manoeuvre corridor, or acting to deceive and confuse our opponent. But this is hard, especially in the environment of fog, fear and friction that is combat. So, how do we do it? The best way the author has found to exploit this final element is to simply redefine risks as good and bad. By doing so, we explicitly identify risks that we think we should take, bringing opportunity to the forefront of briefings and driving a mindset that analyzes, identifies, pursues and embraces good risk for tactical advantage. Good maneuverists exploit good risk against the enemy and aggressively terminate bad risks that allow the enemy an inherent advantage, often the two are linked. Ideally, the good risks would be low risks with high payoff, but this cannot always be the case. Sometime, as with first recon, the highest risks must be taken. This is hard when the situation is uncertain, but such times are where experience, intuition, analysis and judgement come in. The art of tactical command. In a clear break from the barracks mindset, phrases such as so far as reasonably practicable have less relevance here. It's not about reducing risks so far as reasonably practicable. It's about separating good risks from bad, and then seizing the tactical edge that good risks provide. So, in conclusion, combat is one of the riskiest of human activities. As a duel between soldiers and armies, it is inherently uncertain, deeply unpredictable, and slave to the principles of chaos. Many tacticians try to deal with this uncertainty by seeking to wrestle it under control, reducing risks as much as they can, and then taking the elephant one low risk bite at a time. But such a steady, staid approach is too often predictable, conservative and unimaginative. It's easy for a cunning enemy to exploit it, as we saw time and time again in Afghanistan and Iraq in the last two decades. Far better is a tactical approach that seeks to thrive in the chaos of tactical risk, 
This approach acknowledges the risks inherent in combat, invests effort in identifying good from bad, and then brings the good risks into its embrace like an old and trusted friend. Such a focus on good risk, tied into a trusted environment and with a healthy dose of self-confidence, then acts as a central enabler of mission command. Rapid, decentralised execution follows, as does creativity in tactics. Despite perceptions to the contrary, army risk management theory gives us all the tools to exploit tactical risk. On top of clear definitions and delegations, it also explicitly recognises opportunity in the first paragraph. To really exploit this framework, however, we need to invest time in learning how to use our theory. Mindset is the first step. Commanders must establish a common language and attitude to risk, zeroing the azimuth so we all see risk as the same. It must become central to tactical discussions. We then need to delineate between the barracks, training and combat environments, understanding when, so far as reasonably practicable, should rightly be at the fore, and when tactical decision-making needs to dominate. We also need to give commanders confidence that if they take a reasonable risk and it bites, we'll back them up. Finally, we need to focus on the difference between good and bad risks in combat, exploiting the good and terminating the bad to make the best of mission command. The perception that army is risk-averse is only a reality if we let it be. Get this right, and we'll be on the pathway to becoming better tacticians, transforming the risk on our shoulder from a devil to a guardian angel. Thanks for listening to this audio article by The Cove, and remember, a smarter you is a smarter army.